are diving into a new series this week that's going to take us for the next several weeks, and it's a series about uh, relationships, and how many of you have some relationships in your life, some people that you got to interact with from time to time? Okay, I'm in the right place, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting thing because we're walking into this series uh, right on the kind of the cusp of rooted launching and us getting into some new types of relationship uh, with one another, but we are uh, kind of branding this. And uh, I know I'm just a little bit late for uh, the Olympics, but we're calling it Let the Games Begin. Let the games begin. And when we originally were landing on this, we were going to land it right up with Easter and then kind of the fast and God changes some direction. And so we're a little bit, I'm not Easter, the Olympics, uh, but, uh, but we're a little bit off of that. But, but I, I love this idea of let the games begin because I like playing games. Let me rephrase that. I like winning games. <laughs> Who are my like winning games people? Yeah. Who are my, I just like to play. I don't care if I win or lose. Yeah, I don't understand you guys at all. Like, I don't have any concept of, of what that is. But let's face it, games are, are, are awesome, but games can go wrong sometimes. As a matter of fact, I've, uh, I've experienced games going wrong probably as often as they can go right. Um, I, I'm currently uh, a little league coach for my little guys. And last year, I had a moment where the game went wrong on me. My son, uh, Braden, my oldest, hit a ball farther than he's ever hit a ball in a game. Now, this Little League field's at an elementary school where there's no fences, so there's no, like, true home runs over the fence. But the moment he hits it, everybody starts screaming, home run! And he starts sprinting, and then he sees the ball go over their head, and something happens to him. He starts smiling, and as he smiles, it's like his cheeks are like a sail because the wind are hitting it, and he's running slower and slower, and he's enjoying the moment as he's running around. He's never hit a home run before, right? Well, here's the thing. That ball's still in play, and I'm coaching third base, and I watch the kid in right field. Normally, the kid in right field literally has no arm. This kid has an arm. He wings it into the infield, and the ball's in the infield as he's coming just close to third base. And, I'm, and, and one of the things, they, they, they don't want the little guys having big plays at the plate. And so I'm trained, like, hey, we don't want big plays at the plate, so if the ball's there, just hold him up, right? But what I don't realize is my kid is smiling so big that his ears and eyes are both closed, apparently, because he's not hearing his dad say, stop, stop. I'm at third base. He's coming around. I'm running ahead of him with my arms up. Stop, stop. And he's just prancing, like, in the moment. I mean, chariots of fire are playing in the background in his own soundtrack. He's having a moment, and I'm yelling, stop. And I put my arms out in front of the base path. I'm like, stop. And he runs right into my arms. Now, I don't know if you know this about baseball, but you can't touch the third base coach, or you are and suddenly his eyes pop open and they're filled with this moist liquid stuff. And he's like, dad, did you just get me out? Not a highlight of my dad career, guys, right? And I was so frustrated that he wasn't listening to me that I'd rather him be out than have a chance at a home run because my boy needs to listen to me when I'm, come on somebody. Sometimes games don't go the way we think they should go. <laughs> and sometimes games can create tension. Games are a great way to get to know somebody. Like you didn't know how competitive that person was in your life until you played some apples to apples with them, <laughs> right? Till you played spoons with them or some kind of a game. Family game nights are good things. You think you know Pastor Andrew, but if you haven't played ping pong with him, I'm telling you, you don't know Pastor Andrew, Games will tell you a lot about one another. 
You know, <laughs> in my, uh, my wife's not in here. I talked about her first service and she didn't kill me, so I'll say it again. But uh, when we were first dating, we we're in summer after ninth grade. We're at summer camp. And the current game that everyone's playing is a game called Speed. It's a card game. Our first fight as a couple was over a card game called Speed. That was 25 years ago. We haven't played Speed since. She still gets mad if I bring it up. I had to make a decision for the health of our future relationship to ban that game. Here's the thing. There's some games that are healthy. There's some games that aren't healthy. But no one likes to be in a relationship with someone who's playing games. Someone who's trying to, trying to manipulate us. Trying to play a game that we didn't volunteer or sign up to play. They're trying to twist us to their behavior. And the reality is the dangerous series of games that we play in relationships is kind of the theme of the next couple weeks. And the first one that we're going to talk about is a little game I like to call the change game. And the change game goes a little something like this. I like you for who you are, but I really like you for who I can get you to be. I like you for who you are, but I'm convinced I can get you to be somebody else. And so in this relationship that we're experiencing with someone, we start playing the wrong kind of games and we try to change the person that we're with. Now, if you've been in any kind of relationship, you know this happens from time to time. Work relationships, this happens. Friendships, this happens. Neighbors, we happen, this happens. But it happens a lot in more intimate, personal relationships. As a matter of fact, my wife tried to change me right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. You know how she tried to change me? She tried to get me to eat her people's food. Can I just be real with her a second? I didn't eat Chinese food my whole life growing up at all. I was afraid of it. I didn't try it. I ate meat, potatoes, and refried beans and fried like tortillas and pastelas and panatillas. Like I ate Mexican slash Puerto Rican fare, okay? And it was just meat, potatoes, beans, tortillas, rice. That's my people's food. So my parents, when they would want to go on dates, they would literally just say, hey, we're going to go to Chinese food. And I would say, I don't want to go. And they're like, oh, great. And then they'd go to a movie, Disneyland. I don't know where they went. They went wherever they wanted to go, but they just had to say Chinese food and I wouldn't go. So God has a sense of humor because I fall in love with this beautiful Asian American. And she's like, well, you got to meet my grandparents. I'm like, sure. What are we going to do? We're going to go to a restaurant. And my thinking is, yeah, there's lots of things at restaurants. It'll be fine. But she takes me to a real restaurant like the kind of restaurant where there's a spinning table and everything on there is like crawling and pulsing. And I'm looking at this table and I'm like, oh, I made a horrible mistake. And I look over at her and I'm like, I'm not eating any of this. And she goes, listen, you don't have to like it, but it's rude if you don't taste it. And I'm like, okay, I need a large drink or something, right? And they're like, oh no. And they bring me out this little water glass that's like a shot glass size. There's a pitcher of water, but a shot glass, right? And I ate the whole meal like I was taking medicine. Put a bite, shot glass, boom, right? And I'm just hammering the entire meal. I ate one of everything and then I was done. And I couldn't talk, like my stomach was swimming, whatever I was, they were fighting in there. I was so, and our second fight, was <laughs> she, she let me go to this restaurant. I'm like, why are you trying to change me? Now, I love Chinese food now. And, you know, I, I have changed, but she didn't change me. But we know that. We always end up uh, frustrated when we try to change people, huh? 
trying to change people always leads to frustration. It always leads to frustration. Why? Because people don't change people. People change, but people don't change people. Trying to change someone always leads to frustration. I come from, in my family, there's a lot of addicts. There's a lot of addicts. And can I just be honest with you? I've tried everything I know to do to change someone who doesn't want to change. And I'm pretty good. Like, I got a compelling voice. I can make a good argument. You know, I could have went into car sales or something like that. I've probably done well. Like that, I'm, I'm pretty convincing. I can be pretty manipulative from time to time. I can make a good case. I can barrage you with information. I've tried all the tools that I have to change someone, come on now, that didn't want to change. And you know who was frustrated? Both of us. You know what relationship got real toxic real fast? That relationship. Because you can't change someone who doesn't want to change. And trying to change someone will always lead to frustration. And it's like, well, Pastor Mike, what am I supposed to do if I, if, I, if I know someone and I need them to change? What if they're in something that's toxic or dangerous or harmful? You just gave a great example. Don't you want them to change? Don't you want them to experience change? The reality is, again, people do change. It's just that people don't change people. And we don't have the power and authority to change someone, but we will give it our best shot. We'll give it our best shot. And people will change for us for a season just to get us off their back, just to play the game with us enough to get some breathing room before they flee. So how are we supposed to manage this? And can I just be real with my church folks today? Church people really want to change other church people all the time. We think, hey, if you would just do it the way I do it, it would be better for you. If you would just do it the way I think you should do it, it would be better for you. This is not abnormal to just the uh, other relationships. Even in the church, we try to change people all the time. As a matter of fact, we wear it as a badge of honor, our efforts to change people. Yet we know that most relationships that are centered around trying to change somebody aren't healthy relationships. Yet God calls us to have relationships with people, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. And so we get into the word of God and we say, give us some direction on how to manage these relationships when we don't agree and we want the other person to change. Now, here's what's beautiful. If you're here this morning and, and maybe, you know, you've, you've been checking out this Jesus thing for a while and you're still not sure where you're at. And, and I just want, hopefully what we talk about today will be a tool that's helpful for you no matter what you believe in, you just give it a shot. But if you're here, and you're a Jesus person. You say, yeah, that's me. I'm on team Jesus. What we talk about today, I think might be challenging for some of us. It might mess with our paradigm a little bit. So I invite you to be frustrated as I'm frustrated with what it seems like God introduces as the process of dealing with someone who disagrees with me. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, I want you to jump to uh, the book of Romans, the letter of Romans in the New Testament. And Paul this expert on theology and Christian thinking and processing tension as followers of Jesus is going to invite us into attention in a way that is really frustrating for me and really freeing at the same time. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14. And as we dive in there, I have to tell you a little bit about the book of Romans. It's a letter that was written by Paul. And Paul was starting churches all around Asia at the time. 
And in about Acts chapter 20, uh, he, he stops in Corinth and he writes two letters. And here's the thing that's kind of strange is we don't really know who started this church that popped up in Romans. Church history has conflicting, uh, debated, uh, debating this topic of who started the church. Some say Peter lived in Rome for a long season, but we don't really have evidence of that. We're not really sure where this church sprung up from. What seems to make the most sense, though, is way back in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up, and all of the church explodes. Thousands of people get saved in Jerusalem, but they're all from different places, and so they, they hear about Jesus, they trust in Jesus, they experience relationship with him, the power of the Holy Spirit comes to transform their lives, but then they go home. And they go home to places where no one else has heard about Jesus. And can I just be honest with you for a second? There is nobody who's better at talking about Jesus than someone who just met Jesus. It's like the more you know about Jesus, suddenly you become less proficient for some reason about talk or less courageous at least in doing it. But there's something about someone who just met Jesus. And here's a little bit what it looks like. Hey, I just met Jesus. Have you ever met Jesus? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you about Jesus. I'm so excited because now I've experienced freedom. Now I've experienced life. Now I've experienced love and acceptance that I never knew was available. Did you know this was available? No, I didn't know this was available. Let me tell you about Jesus. And there's something incredibly exciting when new when people just meet Jesus and they start telling about, and churches explode and come alive when they, when they start talking about Jesus like that. And so here's this church that has sprung up in Rome, basically because people who met Jesus kept on talking about Jesus. So Paul, excuse me, Paul shows up, or Paul hasn't been to this church. He just sees this exploding church. He's at another church in Corinth and he writes a couple of letters. He writes a church to, uh, a, a letter to the church uh, that became the letter of Galatians in Galatia. And he writes a letter to Rome. Now, the church in Galatians, uh, it has a very unique issue that they're dealing with, a specific issue. And the issue that they're dealing with is there, there is a two cultures happening at the same time. And there is new people who are coming to know Jesus who are excited. And there's what he calls the Judaizers or the Judaizers. And these are people who have added Jesus to their Hebrew faith. And so they have experienced Jesus and they're like, yeah, this is true, but you should also do all of our church traditions that we like. And Paul writes this tense letter to this church in Galatians saying, hey, God just set you free. Don't walk backwards into bondage, walk forwards into freedom. Now, I gotta tell you, there's a pretty tense issue that they're dealing with at this church in Galatians. And I gotta tell you if, you, if you think it's hard to change someone, imagine if the thing you were trying to change, fellas, was at an adult age, as you became a follower of Jesus, someone came up and said, oh, that's cool, you're a follower of Jesus. Um, you gotta get snipped. Circumcision is a big, important part of following Jesus. And you're like, wait a second, that wasn't in the brochure. Um, when, when I signed up, no one said anything about circumcision right? And that's this tense moments happening in this church in Galatians where Paul's writing. He's like, you don't, this is now an, an internal heart issue, not an external flesh issue. And you don't have to walk backwards. You can walk forwards into freedom. That's the church of Galatians. The other letter he writes is to Rome. And this church in Rome is really unique because it's sprung up in homes and houses. And there's these different ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds. Some people are slaves and some are free. And they've heard this story about Jesus and they've accepted God and they've started meeting together, but they're not all meeting in one place. 
So there's a house over here and there's people getting together and they're saying, you know, they don't have all the scriptures. They're saying, what have you figured out? And you're like, oh, God just taught me I could forgive anybody. That's awesome. Let's forgive everybody. And then there's another house over here and they're like, what have you figured out? And God's like, he just showed me I can love somebody that I haven't loved before. Cool, let's all love someone we haven't loved before. And these guys are experiencing God and they're trying to figure out how to live it out. And these guys are experiencing God and they're trying to figure out how to live it out. And then these guys look over here and go, you're not doing it the same way I'm doing it. And these guys look over here and they're like, so what? We're just doing it. And these guys are like, no, 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 no. I need you to do it the same way I'm doing it. And suddenly they start trying to change each other. And as that's happening, it's creating tension in this young movement of fresh believers. And that's the letter of Romans. And there's this theme that's coming out through all of the book of Romans because these people who have been taught their whole life that their primary allegiance is to Rome are suddenly saying, my primary allegiance is to Jesus. And what does that look like? And so Paul kind of summarizes it in in the heart of uh, Romans. I think this is one of those lines that just kind of gives you the whole picture of what he's trying to communicate. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Uh, You don't have to go there, but I'll just put it up there. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. And he's saying, you don't have to do things in a way that, like, you don't have to let your evil inclinations determine your behavior. You can now take good inclinations and overcome evil. And they start overcoming things. They start overcoming Roman culture. They start being self-sacrificial and loving and kind. But there's this tension because they're not all doing it the same way. Now, listen, I don't know how long you've been coming to church here, but if there's nobody in the church that you don't go, ah, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way how they do stuff, then you haven't been going to church long enough. That's part of our experience because we're relational people and creatures that we're gonna have some rub every now and then. Someone's gonna think a little bit different or behave a little bit different than I think they should. And because of that, it's gonna rub me the wrong way. So there's this tension that's coming out through the letter as we land in Romans chapter 14 between what is my Christian freedom and what is my Christian responsibility? What am I responsible to do and what am I free to do? And how do those two things live? Can I do whatever I want or are there things that are not supposed to do? How does this work? And then if I figure out how I think it works for me, are my ethics the standard for everyone? And so Paul writes this letter, and it's beautiful how he illustrates it. And we're going to walk into the tension right now in chapter 14, verse 1. And he says this. He says, change the one whose faith is weak. No. He says, convince and compel and argue with the person whose faith is weaker than yours. No. How about this? Passive aggressively manipulate the person, give them the silent treatment or negative body language if their faith is weak or comes out differently than yours. Or go to lunch with people who you agree with and talk about the person whose faith is different and weaker than yours, looks different than yours. No. He says, I'm telling you, we're going to get tense here a little bit, church. We're going to be real. He says, you got to accept the person whose faith is weaker than yours without quarreling over or fighting or arguing over disputable matters. Now, I love the word that he uses here for accept. It's a, it's a beautiful word. It's preslambano, and it's a Greek word, and it, it has a, a visual picture of it, of taking someone in 
It's like an embrace and welcoming and bringing them into yourself. He's saying someone whose faith comes out differently than your faith comes out, take them in to yourself. Welcome them. Embrace them. Accept them. Take them in. You know, it's funny because we get mad at each other for disagreeing about the dumbest things. The dumbest things. I remember I was in fifth grade and my two best friends and I, we were like three amigos. It was recess, because we go to recess back then, and we had to pick teams. And we were playing, you know, you know how you do different sports, different seasons. It was like a two-hand touch flag football kind of season, right? We were playing two-hand touch football, and we had to pick teams. And the way we did first pick, rock, paper, scissors. Easy, right? First pick. The argument was, is it two out of three or just one straight up? That was the argument. My two friends, my best friends, went to blows over two out of three or one straight up. And they resolved it with a foot race. And the loser of that foot race never talked to the other guy again. All the way through high school. It was the end of our friendship of our little three amigos. Disputable matters. Things that aren't important. I've seen people leave churches over paint colors. Paint colors. I've seen people leave relationships over some of the silliest, silliest things. And Paul says, accept people who think differently than you, whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, we've got to be real for a second here. What if, what if it's not a, a, a small matter? I mean, Pastor Mike, you were talking about addiction before. What if we're talking about something dangerous? What if someone's breaking the law? What if someone's faith lets them break the law? What if someone's faith lets them harm or hurt from somebody or steal from somebody? You know what? If there are some matters that are disputable, then there must be some matters that are indisputable. That are indisputable. That we all agree these are lines we don't cross because of who Jesus is. Because of what he's done for us. So where do we find the distinction in that? Oh, he gave us a handbook to help us craft and figure out whether this is a disputable issue or not a disputable issue. The problem is when we can agree if it's indisputable, but we think if we're right, then it must be indisputable. And so we fight over things like what time service should be at, the temperature in the room, the lighting, whether Pastor Mike preaches on topics or walks line by line through a verse, whether we use creative pieces, not creative pieces, whether there's electronic guitar or there's bass or there's what drums or there's two, like we fight about things and we say, well, here's why I believe that way. How long my hair should be. Listen, if you cut your hair, I'm sad just because I can't grow any. I don't care if you cut your hair. Scripture does not care. But we get into it and we get tense and we try to make things say what we, what we want it to say and what we need it to say and we take lines out of context and we don't look at the whole of scripture. And so we make disputable things indisputable. And here's the problem. If we think it's indisputable, then if we disagree, instead of accepting people, we just judge them, right? We just judge them. If we think it's indisputable, even if we just think it's disputable, we just go ahead and judge them anyways, right? Oh, I can't believe she walks like that. I can't believe she wore that. I can't believe they raised their kids that way. I can't believe that they bought that car. 
I can't believe that they keep their house that way or they spend their money that way or they, whatever it is. And we get to be, come on now, some of the most judgmental people over disputable things where the scriptures give us tremendous liberty. We want everyone to look just like us. And it's tense. It's tense. We start asking, well, why do you do it that way? So Paul's gonna help us figure it out and he's gonna give us two case studies to give us some context of how to manage this. And he's gonna start with one that I love because it's totally relevant in today's age. He says, listen, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Vegetarians, can we have a conversation about which one of us has the weak faith? I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm teasing. But here's what you do know. I don't care if you're a vegetarian, but I don't wanna lecture when I eat my steak, all right? I don't wanna lecture about what I should, and how about this one? This is where it comes out even more. You've ever been at a restaurant with someone and you're like, oh yeah, I'll have dessert. And, you're, and you could just feel the, the whole table like, oh, or you can feel somebody's like, oh, and this is the judgment and those judging eyes. I'm like, I don't care about your judging eyes. Cheesecake, bring it, <laughs> right? In my family, cheesecake is acceptable. If it's not in yours, that ain't your problem. That's my problem. If I gotta hold my breath to, brush, to, to tie my shoe, that's my choice. <laughs> cheesecake. So Paul says, listen, one person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. What is he really talking about here? We got to understand this snapshot of their culture. I'll, I'll, I'll try to give it to you quickly. But the reality is that much of the meat that was kind of circulated through the butcher's blocks and all those things, they would sacrifice that meat for an idol, for whatever God they were worshiping. And they would say, you know, hey, this is dedicated to the temple of Artemis, Diana, whatever. And they would sacrifice it, but they wouldn't waste the meat. Then they just haul it over to the butcher and the butcher chop it up. And so you'd go to get meat and you wouldn't know. Is this Dedicated me, not dedicated me. And for some people, this was a real problem for their faith because they said, I, as I understand the, the scriptures and who Jesus is and who God is, I'm not supposed to mess around with this contaminated stuff. So I'm gonna just avoid it altogether. Now for other people, they're like, I have no problem. I don't know if this was dedicated or not. I don't believe that that has any authority in my life. I'm free. I love Jesus and I'm hungry. T-bone me, Right? And so Paul says, don't get into a fight over this. Verse three, he goes, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who doesn't eat everything must not judge the one who does. Listen to this, this is crazy. This will wreck you. For God has accepted them. Both of them, both of them. They disagree and God's like, yes. Someone's like, can we do this? God's like, yes. Should we not do this? God's like, yes. <laughs> I told you it's gonna be a little tense and frustrating. Wait a second. As I understand your word, God, we shouldn't do this, right? Yes. As I understand your word, God, we're free to do this, right? Yes. And there's this incredible tension that Paul's walking through. And he's saying, if you're over here, love those people. And if you're over here, don't you judge those people. Wait a second. That seems really messy, God. This is, the, and then we go, oh, people are messy. Okay, I get it a little bit. It makes, but it's a huge big idea. How could God accept them both? And I had to learn this. I'm going to be honest. In church world, I picked up some things. 
I picked them up early on. And some things that I, I just heard as the way people did it, I just assumed is the way you had to do it. Now, I did youth ministry for a long time, lots of years working with teenagers. And I'll just be honest with you. I put it into my contract, if you were an adult working with a teenager in my program, that you would not drink any alcohol whatsoever as long as you were in the program. Why did I do that? Because I heard that's what you do if you're a Christian. You just don't do anything that could potentially be seen by anyone ever as dangerous. And so I need a policy or a law or a rule to make sure that you don't do anything that would ever get you close to dangerous. For like 12 years, I had that in my policy. I had big, healthy, alive, living youth ministries, tons of kids coming to know Jesus, and a bunch of adults that were following my rules, not the Bible. And someone finally challenged me and said, hey, how come you have that policy? And I said, because it works. Because I don't have to clean up messes that could possibly be there. And he goes, did Jesus have that policy? Probably. He probably had a policy, because he would be smart as I am at least, right? And it's working. So he probably would have that policy. And I had to, for the first time, now listen, I don't drink. I don't drink for a couple reasons. One is, as part of just being licensed in our movement, we agree that, you know, the eyeballs are all on us. And so we just don't drink. It's a, it's a, it's a choice of the movement that we're, that we're a part of. But the reality is, I've left a, lost a biological dad and a stepdad within seven days of each other, both for alcohol-related deaths. And so in my family... We can't mess around with that because we don't have that thing where it's like, oh, this is what's wisdom and this is what's not wisdom, so let's stop right here. We just go, ha, 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 until our lives are a mess, right? It's like, wee, down the slide we go until there's a crash. And so because there's so much addiction in my family, I have to stay away from some things. But can we just be honest, church people? The scripture does not have the same standard that I have. But my standard is good for me. And I should have my standard. And when I go to God and say, I think because of my relationship with you and how you're dealing with me, this needs to be my standard. And God goes, yes. And when you go to God and say, hey, as I, I have this other standard. And you know, here's what the scripture's clear on. Drunkenness is indisputable. And if you're getting drunk, you're getting smashed, you're losing control of your mind and yourself. The scripture says, hey, knock that off. But I don't know, church people, we gotta have hard conversations like this. The Bible's not anti-alcohol, like even a little. It's just not. And you can't make a great conversation point out of here from the Bible. You can make church history points. You could say, this is how I've seen it done. And you know what I'll say? Good, amen, high five, yes. And if you come over here and make the other point, I'll say, yes, amen, high five, good. Because that's what the scripture tells us to do with those disputable matters. I love you both. I love you both. I can't treat you with contempt if we disagree. And if I try to make you live the way I think you should live, the scripture says that's weak faith. That's weak faith. That is weak faith. If I try to make you live under some kind of policy that I think is best for you, the scripture says I'm the one with weak faith. It's not no faith, it's faith. God still loves me. He's just not happy with me judging you. Here's how I know this. Verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? You're not my servant. You have a master if you trust Jesus, just like I have a master. It says, to their own master's servants stand or fall. And listen to this. And they will stand for the Lord's able to make them stand. What is he saying? He's saying they're accountable to me. 
And if they whiff, that's my problem, not your problem. And if they need to get back up, I'll get them back up. You don't take it as your personal assignment to go do that to them. Wow. Verse five. Oh, he's going to give me a second example, just in case I didn't believe him so far. He says, one person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. So this is, you got to remember, in their culture, some, some of them came from culture, which is just like, you have to observe all of these holy days. And some are like, every day is holy. Every day is the same. Well, you got to worship on Saturday, and you can't work on Saturday. Why well, worship on Sunday, and God's showing up. So what are you saying? What are you saying? There's like tension here, right? Listen to this. This is crazy language. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. This is crazy talk from the scriptures, and it's true. Hey, if you're certain that you're doing it right, you're right. If you have a relationship with God, you're living for him, and you're sure that you're doing it right, you're right. That is crazy talk, but it's true. Church people, we got to get a hold of this. We got to stop taking a position that's counter the word of God. Verse six, because whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat, praise the Lord, does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so for who? The Lord. And they give thanks for God. He's saying in your relationship with God, that's the thing I care about when you do the thing that maybe is disputable to someone else, but you're doing it with your relationship to God and being thankful to God and giving credit to God, then we're on the same team. Come on now. Even if we're playing the positions different, we're still on the same team. Essentially, he's saying how you love the person that disagrees with you says more about your relationship with God than what behavior and rules you follow or try to get them to follow. I used to think early on in my walk with God, let's be honest, through most of my walk with God, that the more things you don't do, the closer you are to God. The more things that you, like, I'm just climbing up the ladder of things I don't do. I used to don't do this. Now I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. It's like I'm getting closer to God somehow in my head. You know, the, the, the Hebrew culture did that. They just kept on saying, well, here's the things we don't do. And then the next generation would come out and they go, ah, we're going to move out here. These are all the things we don't do. And then the next generation would come out and they go, I can't get close to that. So these are all the things that we don't do, right? And they thought they were getting closer and closer to God. And then God shows up in a human body and they can't recognize him. Because all the things they don't do taught them to be nowhere close to God. And God shows up and they can't even tell who he is. The reality is the more and more things I don't do, it's just kind of the weirder I get. I just get weirder, right? I get unhealthy, unbalanced, unrelatable. I get further and further away from people that God loves because I'm like, oh, I don't do that. 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 And then I can't do anything. I'm paralyzed. I'm outside of relationship with people and with God. And here's Paul, and he's trying to say, love changes the, the what I can do and what I can't do and what I should and what I shouldn't do. Not to love, but to what I ought to do and what I ought not 
to do. And then he paints this beautiful picture of being in relationship with people and loving them where they're at and not taking your liberty in such a way that it crashes their life. If you know I got a problem with alcohol and you drink alcohol in front of me because you're like, hey, I'm free, that's your problem. Love shouldn't let you do that. The law of love should, should, should restrict. So you get to choose to restrict your freedoms because of people that you love, not because of law and legalism. And he's saying, this is the tension that we get to walk into. Another massive concept, verse seven. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. What is he trying to say here? He's trying to say, listen, guys, we're all connected. All our lives are connected. And when you start saying, well, I do this and everyone else needs to do this. And if you don't do this, you're out. And you start disconnecting yourself from other people because of that, you're wrong. We're all connected. And if we don't understand it, he's going to redundancy it to the death right here in verse 8. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to God. He's like, it doesn't, as long as you're doing it for the Lord and you're in relationship with him, you're doing it right. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Verse 10, you then, so why do you judge your brother or sister? And why do you treat them with contempt? For we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. He's like, there is a judge. And he's doing his job. Now, his job. Now, I love the tension of this because earlier he just said, God accepts them. And now he says, oh yeah, by the way, God judges them. Which is it, God? Do you accept or do you judge? And I kept going back and forth. Which is it? Are you accepting everyone or are you judging everyone? And the answer is yes. Yes. The answer is yes. You know how the answer is yes? If you have a kid, you'll be able to relate to this. I accept my kids. I love my kids. And when they do the wrong thing, I say, knock it off. And I judge them. And I say, because you did that, you now lost this privilege. And judgment is final. Don't come crying back. Doesn't mean I love them less or I accept them less. It means I care about them and I want what's best for them. And based on where they're at, this is the right way and, and, and that I know of to try to help them get to the next level of maturity. And God's doing the same thing with us. And he's like, I love you. And you're in. And knock it off. And if you don't knock it off, here's the consequence. And you want God to do that. We want God in that role. Why? Because we're horrible in that role for other people. And if we start putting ourselves in that role, we just blow up relationships. Why? Because we can't love perfectly like God loves. We're doing the best we can, but let him do the judgment piece. If we're going to swing and miss, let's swing and miss on the love piece, not the judgment piece. He's pretty clear. That's my job, guys. I got that. I got that. He's better at it than you and me. He sees the whole picture. Ever, <laughs> ever been judging someone? They're like, you just don't understand. Can't pull that with God. <laughs> All right? That massive trump card. Hey, you need to knock this off. You just don't understand. Okay, I guess I don't understand. I'll go do something else. And here comes God, and God's like, yeah, I understand. I saw every piece. I knew what was in your heart, what was in your mind. I knew where you made the horrible choice. I knew where you tried to make the good choice. I saw what happened there. I love you and knock it off. Both. Both things are happening. Where am I at? I'm getting 
Oh, verse, verse 11. <laughs> Come on, somebody. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. He's like, I got this. I got the whole scope of it. There's nobody out there who I don't got, so you don't have to get them. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. He's like, we're all going to have to have that conversation. Now, here's the thing I think is really tense about this, because he's talking about multiple things. He's talking about your behavior, but he's particularly talking about whether or not you're judging someone else's based on their behavior. And I know all my sin is covered, forgiven, bought, and paid for. I think this conversation is going to be a lot about, hey, I love you, and you're in, and your behavior, come on now, towards someone else who was in was kind of judgmental, kind of off. Can you explain that to me? How'd you get to that conclusion? I thought I made it pretty clear, Romans 14. <laughs> Pastor Mike explained it. He was all sassy. That should have stuck. I think that conversation's gonna be in there. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. He says, listen, your job when someone disagrees with you on how it should be done how they should do their thing, if it's a disputable matter, is to just accept them and love them. And the more you try to get in and manipulate and twist and fix them and say, but just try it this way. Do it like I do. You got to do it this way. Oh, you know what? If you do it this way, you can be in. You can be in. Come on. I'll let you in. I'll let you. Here's the door. Oh, not yet. He's like, stop being like that. Stop putting a stumbling block in front of people that I love, that I accept. Your job is also to accept them. Now, this is a hard thing, church. It's a hard thing. You know what? Well, let me, let me finish. Um, uh, brother, sister, you know, this is especially important to people coming out of legalism or some other kind of bondage. If you grew up in a culture and everyone had to do it a certain way or look a certain way or wear certain clothes or have a certain amount of makeup or not too much makeup or a certain a tie has to be tied. If any of those kinds of things like drove your religious faith experience, I'm not saying any of those things are the worst. Some people who are in those experiences love the Lord and I'm not judging them. But if you're coming out of those, this is really hard stuff. It messes with your paradigm. It messes with you. It messes with me. He goes on to kind of end his thought on verse 19. I'll just jump ahead that he says, therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. He says, our job is to do every effort to be peacemakers and build each other up. Here's the thing. I found that when people first come to know Jesus and they got questions and they're trying to figure things out and they're trying to, trying to just, wow, what happens next? This is awesome. The least effective tool I have is to just give them a list of behaviors, right? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't swear, don't cuss, don't chew, don't run with those that do, whatever the thing is, right? Like, and, and, and churches have historically done this to people, right? I'm, be honest here. So I've, I, I, I don't, it's a long story to get to a short point. I've seen old membership cards from like the 20s, 30s, and 40s of people joining churches. And some of the things that they had to say in order to uh, decide if they were eligible to become part of the church, some of the things they had to commit, I've seen in a, in a man's trembling kind of handwriting answering the question, do you play dominoes or endorse those that do? And I've seen someone write out, I play dominoes, but only in my home with my wife. 
dominoes. I'm just bowling at some season, right? Dance. Oh, man, I started a fire at the Bible college. Bobby was there over dancing. I said, dancing? You don't know any Mexicans? You have to dance. You don't know any Filipinos? We have to dance. Like turn 15 and it's a dance. Like we, our cultures just dance. You can't tell me that all dancing is the devil. I get into the scriptures and that's just not true. So I found that that's not the most effective way to share about how to get to know Jesus. What I found is really effective is to just say, hey, let's do life together. Let's pray. Why don't you open your Bible? Why don't you start in John and just see who Jesus was and what he's like? And let's get together and talk about that and see what you've learned. And you know what I found? Really messy people start cleaning stuff up as they get to know Jesus. Why? Because the more you're around Jesus, the more you're like, this God, God is for me, not against me. And the things he wants for me are to help me, not to hinder me. And so I'm gonna leave some things behind, not because I'm being uh, 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 manhandled into that, but because I want the freedom that I get when I'm walking closer with Jesus and that stuff's holding me back. And then change and, and, and new life happens. Can I, <laughs> I had a pastor friend mentor. He is from Iowa, and so he knew things about farms that I'll never know or really want to know. All I want from farms is for them to fill up my grocery store so I can buy the things I want. But <laughs> I don't care how any of the process works, right? <laughs> I'm just happy it does. But he has lived on farms, and he had this point that he made, and he said, he said, you know how a farm is really successful? You know how you know if a farm is really successful or how we knew that our farm was really successful in us? What? How do you know? He goes, well, if the farm's really successful, you're shoveling a lot of poop. He goes, when you're not shoveling very much, the farm isn't doing well. But when you're shoveling a lot, that means there's a lot of animals and a lot of life and there's a lot of good things happening, but it's also really messy. He goes, churches are the same way. It's like, there's something there. Because here's what I believe, guys. The more we get a hold of following Jesus and taking that love that God's given to us and are giving it away to people, the messier things are gonna get. There's gonna be messy stuff. And the temptation, talking straight to church people here for a second, the temptation is gonna be to try to hurry up and get everyone to look the way we think they should look, to act the way we think they should act, or to speak or to carry themselves, and that's gonna be the temptation. The scripture says that's Jesus' job. Don't play the change game. That's not how you win. And you've been in relationships with people where you felt right off the bat, oh, this person's just trying to, they just care about me to get me to do what they need me to do. And you felt used and manipulated and you ran. And others will do the same. We gotta be able to do what Paul says here and accept people even if their faith and their expression of it doesn't quite look the way we think it should look, even if they're on the paradigm somewhere else on the pendulum than where we think they should be. So let me recap for you. God is the one who accepts. God is the one who judges. He accepts and he judges. That tension is his. And when we play the change game, it's a lose-lose game. Here's the thing. If we're trying to win, someone's got to lose for us to win. 
It's a horrible way to launch into relationship with someone. You've got to lose for me to win. The change game is a lose, lose game. So let me just ask you some tense questions here. If God has accepted you, why not offer that kind of acceptance to someone else, to others? Can you imagine that person that you really wish would change? If you just loved them for who they are, not who you wish they could be, what that might do? What would have to change in you and what would have to, what it would be like to just love them for where they're at and who they are right now? Can you imagine that tension? Even if it was your spouse, even if it was your kid, maybe it was just a coworker or a neighbor and you started loving them for who they are, not where they're at, not where, they, where you'd like them to get. Think about this. What would it look like if you chose to treat others the way God has treated you? You know how much I love the way God has treated me? God has been so kind to me. Listen, the scripture is clear. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He's been kind to us. He's given us grace, mercy, compassion. He's loved me even though I've tanked and mistaked and made mistakes and fallen on my face. He's brought me back up. He's redeemed me, restored me, revived me, grown me. He's had all of that patience and kindness towards me. What if I tried to love people the way I saw God loving me? What if that was the model? What if that was the thing that, I uh, believed about how I should interact with people. Let me go one step deeper. What if, what if the thing that's really bothering you about somebody's non-changing, the thing that God's agitated in you about the thing that someone isn't changing, their behavior isn't changing, and it's agitating you, what if the thing God's working on isn't them, but it's you. What if he's pointing out something in you that's got a little bit too judgmental, got a little bit too particular, got a little bit too comfortable, got a little bit not merciful enough, got a little bit not kind enough? What if he's really brought that to your heart and attention so it will squeeze out of you something that he wants to change and grow in you? Could it be possible that God would love you and them enough to want both of you to change? Even if you're right. We've said time and time again, hey, I think I'm right. God's like, yes. But I think I'm right. God's like, yes. It's tense. What if God wants to expose something in me that was being so bothered by this? <laughs> this comes up in little things all the time. You know you get bothered too quick by some things that don't matter. You know it. That's not their problem, that's your problem. You get bothered too quick, how about something as simple as this? They're not driving fast enough or getting over in the passing lane quick enough. Oh, I went there. They didn't have their debit card out of their pocket. They've been waiting, they're waiting to pay for their coffee for five minutes. They knew they were gonna need it. Get it out of your pocket. And we're done. We're passing judgment on silly, silly, disputable things. And we know we're right. God's like, you are. But you are the one I'm working on right now. You're the one I'm growing. You're the one I'm stretching. Pastor Mike, those are silly ones. Yeah, but it's a heart condition. And if we train our heart, 
on these littler things. And when the bigger things start coming through, we go, oh, that's why I had to learn that lesson. That's why I had to learn that. So here's how you win the change game. Because there, there is a change game, but there's a way to win it, and it's pretty simple. It goes a little something like this. Because when I really believe for life and, and change in someone, and I'm really hoping that God will help them and take them to the next place, and maybe we don't agree, what I'm going to do, instead of trying to change them, is I'm going to live the way I believe God's called me to live in front of them in such a way that they see the provision and blessing of God's life, uh, 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 God's presence in my life. And hopefully they're going to be attracted to that and go, hey, seems like God always blesses you in this area, and I'm struggling in this area. Help me figure out, Travis, how you do that. And then we walk into relationship with them. We say, oh, that's great. You can ask questions kindly and say, hey, you know, help me understand. Seems like, Fred, you, you're okay with this. And, and I don't understand that. So help, help me figure out, because I, I trust you in your relationship with God. Help me figure out how you got there. Ask kind questions. Just love them. Pray for them. It's the biggest tool you have in your arsenal. Say, God, I trust you. I believe you. I'm pretty sure I'm right. If I'm right, help them. Bless them. Change them. Mold them. Shape them. I'll model it. And have the courage, if you're really agitated, to go, God, am I so agitated because you're working on me? And can I be honest and say, maybe I got a little judgmental here. Maybe I figured out the best way to do it. And if no one's doing it my way, they're doing it the worst way. I got a little pride into me and a little something that doesn't look like you. Help me to lay that down. Be willing to let God change you. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close. I'm going to pray. But I, 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 I need us to feel the tension of this because I believe with all my heart, church, that as we start reaching people who are farther away from Jesus and they start coming in, if we don't have this piece down a little bit, if we don't understand that People come in at different places with different backgrounds and different experiences. And as they get into a relationship with God, it's just not going to look one way all the time. And that that's okay. And God's okay with that. And if we don't get that piece into our DNA as a body, as a family of God, if we think everyone has to do it the same way, look the same way, and behave the same way, and have the same boundaries that we have, then we are going to push people outside of relationship that God loves. And we're going to be wrong. So we, got, we can't miss on this one. And it's going to be messy. It's going to be hard from time to time. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be worth it. So God, help us. Help me as a pastor to just keep figuring this out. Help us as a, as a, as a group, a body of believers that you've called together for such a time as this to reach a neighborhood for you, a, a community for you, to reach people who we have relationship with, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, to, to, to be the kind of people who bring life. We want to see the kind of life that sprung up in the Church of Rome. We want to see that in Puyallup where people are just getting together, telling stories. Of, Look at what God's done. It's awesome. And we can just embrace them and love them and say, that's amazing. And celebrate their wins. And not try to jam them into some mold that, God, maybe it is, is best for them, but that's your job. Help us to just love them where they're at and celebrate. God, help us that even when we are mature and we still hold different positions on disputable things, to just get over ourselves and love each other in Jesus. 
I've been going to church for 30 years and let me tell you how this should work. It's like, no. Yes, you're right, but I'm right too. And I love you. Help us to not have weak faith. (laughs) Grow us and mature us. Help us to not have relationships that are built on unhealthy games and manipulations, but are authentic expressions to love the way you demonstrated love without condition. Give us that that we don't have, but we get from you, that capacity. And we thank you and we trust you. In Jesus' name. And the whole church said, amen. Amen. I love you guys.